morning. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Luke. We're in chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, and I'm actually going to read through verse 30 today. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Amen. You may be seated. All righty. So Luke chapter 4 is... Um toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you were here last week, uh, you heard a guest uh, friend of ours preach on Luke chapter 5. So what we've done is back up one more chapter. Um, And at this point, what we're going to do in Luke is just kind of step forward from Luke 4 onward. We're just going to kind of take these Luke unique passages as they come. Uh, They're not going to be exactly like verse by verse every single chapter through Luke because some of the stuff in Luke is also in Matthew or also in Mark, and so we're skipping over the things that are in other uh, Gospels. But this um, event, uh, this, this um, situation with Jesus in Nazareth, uh, is unique to Luke's Gospel. He's the only one that tells this story. And so we're starting here in Luke 4, and uh, we're going to break up this event in two weeks. Um, that's why Nathan just read all the way to verse 30. So we're, we're taking a look at this, this moment where Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, uh, but we're going to cut it in half, and so today we're going to go up to verse 22, and then next week we're going to go 23 to the end. So um, setting us up for kind of a sequel type thing here, because totally here in Nazareth we see Jesus is rejected, but initially here in Nazareth we see that Jesus astounds the crowd in a good way. Uh, and they marvel at what he has to say. And what he says, what he reads from the scroll and then says about the prophet Isaiah and his proclamations is, is paramount for understanding the gospel. And so we want to park here strongly today 
to say, what does it mean for Jesus to read Isaiah 61 and then say that passage is fulfilled? Like, what does that mean? Because that's a colossal moment. And then next week we'll take a look at what happens to, to bring the crowd to the point where they want to throw Jesus off a cliff. Right? Like, this is one of Jesus' first times preaching at church. <laughs> and they want to throw him off a cliff afterward. Right? So I've had some bad days here, right? Where you've been like, the whole time, you've looked at me kind of like, is this guy, what is, huh? You know, but you've never kind of carried me on your shoulders in chains to lead me off, I don't know, to throw me in the bay or something. Like, Jesus has a bad day here in Nazareth, and we want to see why that is. But before we see why it's so bad, we're going to see what the gospel contains in this proclamation that Jesus makes. Cool? So I'm going to reread just our verses for today, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. So here's Luke 4, starting in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? All right, let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this moment and this day. Um, we are always uh, prone to uh, wander and prone to struggle and prone to uh, even disbelief, uh, unbelief, um, lack of faith. And you are faithful to, to reel us back into just a, a grounded understanding of who you are and what it is that you uh, have done our doing and will do uh, when it comes to rescuing uh, your people, this fallen race of Adam. Uh, and so today as we look at an ancient text um, that, that, that preceded Jesus even by hundreds of years and try to understand what a prophet was proclaiming uh, and try to understand what that meant to Jesus and his hearers and even more so what it means to us in this day uh, and to our world um, God, we are desperate for help in that endeavor. We cannot uh, attain to understanding uh, on our own. And so like Jesus came in the power of the Spirit, so too we come today in the power of the Spirit. We come dependent on the power of the Spirit for our hearts to be opened, for our ears to hear, for our eyes to perceive, because we know without you we are deaf, uh, that we are blind, that we are poor, that we are uh, helpless. Uh, and so God... Uh, here we are humble. Uh, here we are humble to say we're looking for help and we need help from you. Uh, and God, that help and that need for help are uh, various and different here among 
us. Um, some of us need physical help. Some of us need emotional help. Some of us need financial help. Some of us need marital help. Some of us need uh, family help, we, career help, whatever it is. God, we are in, many of us, in just a helpless place. Uh, and so, God, would you uh, tune our ears to hear the glorious good news of the gospel for the helpless today, because that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. We need you, Father. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, Luke's just kind of telling us, hey, Jesus went to church, but things are different now. Um, one of the passages we looked at around Christmas time, we saw that Jesus had gone on a journey with his family to Jerusalem, and it was during one of the feasts, and the family all kind of headed out back to Nazareth, and Jesus stayed behind in the temple and was um, talking with, like, the experts of the law, right? And he's 12 years old. He's 12. And these guys are going, oh, what understanding, what marvelous knowledge right, is in this 12-year-old is what they were saying at that moment. And so at that point, that was kind of a, a welcome for Jesus from childhood into manhood. Uh, and, and then Jesus continued on that journey toward manhood through adolescence and teenage years. And then when he went to university, like he's, he keeps on that trajectory towards manhood. And then we know that somewhere around the age of 30, Jesus then goes and, and, and is baptized by John, his cousin, who wears camel skin and eats locusts. And a dove comes floating down from heaven and a huge voice thunders from above. Uh, where God speaks and says, this is my son, and I'm pleased with him. Uh, and then Jesus leaves that place, goes out into the wilderness, faces temptation by the devil himself at the initiation of his ministry, returns victorious over sin, does not fall to the temptation of the first Adam, but conquers Satan, overcomes him by the power of, of God's word and by the, the spirit indwelling in him, and then he leaves that wilderness place and begins to do ministry. And Luke says now he starts going to these synagogues, but his journey or his attendance uh, has shifted from when he was a 12-year-old or a teenager or in university. He doesn't go to attend any longer. He starts to go to teach. And we get a glimpse at when Jesus comes to teach at his hometown synagogue. Okay? Now this is a place where if you were a Jew, you went to every Sabbath day, just like you're accustomed to coming to church every our Sabbath, Sunday, Right? Um, and, and when you come, the, the Bible is opened, right? And we read a passage from the Bible, and then we say, this is what that passage is saying. Okay, that's the point of our gathering, because God has spoken. He has spoken to us in his authoritative, inspired, absolutely flawless word, and we come and hold up that word, submit ourselves, our ideas, our attitudes, um, our, our, our gifts, our ability, we submit ourselves to God's word and we say, this is what God is saying, right? That's what we try to do every single Sunday by the grace of God, proclaim to you, this is what God is saying because this is what God has said and he's delivered to us his word, right? And so Jesus in the synagogue is doing very similar thing. He opens the scroll or the scroll is given to him. This happens every Sabbath in the synagogue. They open a scroll, some scholars think that the, the, the Jewish synagogues followed a calendar, like a yearly calendar for scroll reading. And so if it was June and you showed up at synagogue, you're hearing what was read last June, 
at synagogue and what was talked about. Like, so you're growing accustomed to a rhythm of hearing some of the same stuff week or year after year after year. This is a reminder of kind of how we need to rehear the gospel all the time because we are prone to wander, prone to forget. Right? It is also a reminder that God has said and declared the total truth of what he wants to reveal to us, and we don't have to invent new stuff. Right? We don't have to come up with crafty little man-made ideologies about how to follow God. God's told us who he is and who we are and how he's changed everything by his coming and living and dying and rising. And so again and again and again, week after week, we come here and we say these same things. And so Jesus goes to the synagogue. Luke says, as was his custom. Jesus is a faithful church attender, right? Regularly sitting under the authority of the scriptures and the teaching of the scriptures. Only this point, he comes to be the teacher and he's given the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads from Isaiah. Luke says, Jesus picks what he's reading that day. So I don't know if Jesus breaks from the calendar that day. Okay, The scroll of Isaiah was given to him because that was what was scheduled to be read that day. So at least he's got the scroll of Isaiah, which is according to their, their pattern. But I kind of wonder, I'm reading between lines here, if Jesus intentionally maybe jumps ahead a couple passages. We actually find out in the comparison to Isaiah 61, he doesn't quote absolutely every word from the verses that he reads. And in fact, he adds a few words from Isaiah 58. Okay, So Jesus does something here when the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him to smack the attention of the people. Okay? to awaken them from their pattern of dullness where they might have gotten so used to something that Jesus kind of pulls them out of that sleep. He kind of wakes them up. Okay, And so when this scroll is given to him, Jesus reads from a poem in the, in the middle of the last section of Isaiah that is a, a tremendous moment in the prophet Isaiah. Super fast flyover. Isaiah's a prophet before exile. He tells the kings in Israel, hey, Assyria's coming because you're all wicked and you're disobeying God and you're trouncing on the poor and you're worshiping idols and you're not keeping the sacrifice and you're unfaithful to your God. Assyria's coming and going to attack the city. And then after that, Babylon's coming and they're going to attack the city even worse. They're going to burn it all down, and they're going to take everyone away into exile. That's what Isaiah pro proclaims to Israel. Real popular dude, right? We found out in Isaiah 6. Super popular, okay? Sarcasm. Nobody listens to Isaiah, okay? So, like, a bunch of Isaiah is about that, but starting in Isaiah, I think it's around 56 to the end of the book, there's a change in voice, Okay? And some people think it's because there's some foretelling that Isaiah wrote, and other people think it's because there's disciples of Isaiah that have written things after he died, because the beginning of the voice is, now that exile is over, now that your time in captivity has ended, and you have returned to Jerusalem, God is going to do something spectacular in you. God is going to bring about a tremendous hope and a restoration for Israel, okay? And in the midst of this section of Isaiah, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, 
and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is a poem right in the middle of two other poems that beautifully describe how the Spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor, Tim Mackey says. And in this poem, there's a reaffirmation of all the promises of hope from earlier in the book of Isaiah. The hope is that there's going to be a new Jerusalem inhabited by God's servants, and that will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. So Isaiah's prophecy comes to a people who have been devastated by exile. They've been stolen away from their home, sent to be captives. We talked about this in Daniel's story way back last year, right? And they, they, they return home from that, and they're like, they're beat down. They're like, man, God, God left us. Our enemies thwarted us. They return to Jerusalem, and the place is in ruins. They're like, look at Zion. This is supposed to be the, the shining city on a hill. This is supposed to be the place where God testifies of his greatness to the surrounding nations. And look at it. It's, it's in shambles. And to that people comes this prophecy that there is a good news messenger coming. And that good news messenger is going to bring hope to a hopeless people. The passages or the, the chapters surrounding Isaiah 61, so Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 62, talk about the greatness of a renewed Jerusalem. They talk about the light that is going to come again from God's people. And that it's going to draw nations in to worship the one true God. That the glory of Jerusalem in the future will far surpass the glory of Solomon's day when the temple was big and when the riches were piled high, right? There's this prophecy, and Jesus shows up in Nazareth and reads from this colossal location in Isaiah, right? If you're a Jew in Jesus' day, you are waiting with bated breath about the hope for Israel to be restored, right? You are eagerly anticipating a day when a king ascends the throne and the temple is rebuilt and Jerusalem rises in authority and in power in the area. These are all the things that these people are expecting. And Jesus reads this and he sits down. And Luke, who's just masterful in his writing, he says, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Luke's just leading us to stare at Jesus and just wait. What else is he going to say? What else is he going to say? What else is he going to say? There's so much, much expectation in this part of Isaiah that the people are, they always are ready for kind of the description after the reading, right? They read and then a homily comes. This is the teaching, right? So, they're, they're, so Jesus reads this. Like I said, he, he kind of, inserts other words from, from an earlier part of Isaiah, and he stops sooner than they're used to. He leaves off some words on purpose, and they're, they're just staring at him. What's he going to say? Right? And what does Jesus say? Today the scripture is fulfilled.
we, like, we breeze over this stuff. Right? We just sail past it. It's just a couple words. Jesus says, I am the anointed messenger from heaven here to proclaim a new kingdom, a new peace, a new prosperity, a new coming. It is me you've been waiting for. For hundreds of years, the prophets have been silent and every last one of them talked about another king that was coming, a Messiah yet to arrive from the line of David, a Savior who would rescue Israel. They all said, that guy's coming. And then they stopped talking for 400 years. They stopped. Right? And then people from Syria invade Israel. The Maccabean revolt takes place where they fight back for their power, right? And they make an alliance with Rome to try to shield themselves from Syrian power. And then what happens to that alliance? Hmm, we know Rome takes over, right? In the day of Jesus, who's in power? Jerusalem? No, Rome. These people want a new king and a new power and a rescue. And Jesus says, I'm the prophet Isaiah said is coming. I'm the anointed one. That's, the, that's what Messiah means. I'm the anointed one. And I've come bringing good news to the poor. I've come proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and the oppressed shall be set free. And when we see this proclamation from Jesus at their time, it helps us to understand the proclamation of Jesus for us at our time because they thought these prophecies had something to do with national supremacy. They, they thought Isaiah was foretelling a day of, of high glory for Jerusalem, their capital. They thought that, that Isaiah was proclaiming a new dawn of victory over enemies and, and peace along their borders but that's not what they were experiencing. They were experiencing Roman rule. They were experiencing heavy taxation levied upon them by a foreign entity. They were awaiting a day of political security and external peace. But Jesus here was announcing a day of eternal security and internal peace. People in Jesus' day were hoping for financial favor and material blessing, and Jesus was proclaiming a day of divine favor and spiritual blessing. They were longing for liberation from the chains of oppressors and foreign rulers, and Jesus was proclaiming liberty from the captivity of sin. They wanted a powerful king who would fight, take back the throne, rule in strength, and establish Jewish rule over the whole world. And what did they get? Jesus, who came as a meek servant, one who would suffer in the place of his own people, a man who would be betrayed and captured, falsely accused, crucified, and killed. And so the announcements that the prophecies of Isaiah bring were fulfilled on that day 
that Jesus stood there as the meek and mild, lowly one, and it didn't look anything like the people thought it was going to look like. And this is what's so important for us to understand, that often the gospel is a completely different proclamation than what we are accustomed to thinking good news is. The gospel means good news, and often we think good news has particular characteristics to it. But Jesus in this moment and so many other moments afterward and still today in this moment is proclaiming to us good news isn't what you're prone to think good news is. It's so much deeper and more profound and more lasting than what you're prone to think good news is. Let's take, for instance, the first proclamation. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What's the good news that is brought to the poor? Right? Here's what we think good news to the poor would be. Okay, here's the deal. You're poor now. But if you just listen to God and pray to him and follow these things, then you won't be poor anymore. That's what we think good news to the poor is. Right? That's what we think good news is. But that's not what Jesus is proclaiming. Right? We think good news to the poor is don't worry about losing your job. Don't worry. God's got a better one. And you're never going to lose your job again. You'll never have to have a sleepless night worrying about work again. Just follow Jesus. That's what we're prone to think good news to the poor is, but that's not the good news to the poor. We're prone to think good news to the poor is, it's okay. You'll be financially secure one day. Eventually, this, this weight that tires you day after day, it'll go away just, just a little bit longer. Jesus will take care of every last bill. It'll all be good. Just stick to his principles and, and you'll be good. Right? That's, that's the kind of thing that we think is good news to the poor. But the gospel proclaims something completely different to the poor. The gospel says that financial status has nothing to do with how God looks at you or how God will bless you. The gospel says God's favor is yours not because of your worth, not because of how much is in your account, but because of Christ's worth. Because he is totally and utterly worthy. And he is absolutely rich to the highest possible degree. Because of his riches, not yours, the favor of God can be yours. That's the proclamation of the true good news even to the poor. The good news that God has smiled upon you eternally, eternally in Jesus Christ. The good news is that the one who has no need for anything has paid attention to you. Not because of how you're dressed. Not because of your success. Not because of your account. But because of his great love for you. The one who has everything, who has no need, he looks at you and says, I want you. There is utter value in the gospel that supersedes the values that this world says matter. That's good news to the poor, right? Now, does discipleship and growth in grace and understanding the Lord sometimes change our economic situation? Sure, maybe. Does it have to? No, because that's not the favor of the Lord. 
the favor of the Lord is it doesn't matter how much worth you have. You are of eternal worth to God. Your security is not in jobs or bank accounts or possessions. You're secure in the all-knowing hands of a sovereign king who will take you to the end of your days and then beyond because of his strong, powerful grasp. We need to understand that trusting and hoping not in things of this world, but in the one who has made this world is where our deep security lies. And it's also what can lead us to say with Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can say that and know that when you understand that God's favor has nothing to do with your belongings. We can also say with Jesus in Luke 9 that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus himself knew what it was like to not have a home, to not have a pillow. Jesus knows that. The Son of God, without a pillow. We can say with Paul, In 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. There is a profound shift in reality when we understand that God's favor is on those who cannot earn favor for themselves. Right? And here, let me say this. God's favor on the poor, this is an idea that permeates through all of Scripture. Right? In the Mosaic Law, there were laws that provided for the poor. In the prophets, we see the, the condemnation of the mistreatment of the poor. We see allowances for the poor to bring different kinds of offerings within the sacrificial system. God was mindful of the plot of the poor. Within Israel, there was this constant idea that there would be communal care for the widow and the fatherless, and even the foreigner seeking aid, these were all written into the social customs of God's people because he commanded it. Because he said, care for the poor. Because he said, you once were poor and I cared for you. You once were foreigners and I brought you in. You once had no home and I gave you a home. You once were vile and dirty and naked and I cleaned you and I clothed you. So therefore, here's how you ought to look at the world around you. And listen, this is just a side note. If you think I'm speaking with politically charged words, I'm not. Okay? You're starting to get edgy. We're starting to say, yay, he's on my side. I'm not doing anything political here. This is the Bible. Amen? We see that many main characters in the drama of redemption are poor. Or they're just insignificant individuals. Mary, Jesus' mother, is one of the prime examples. And Jesus himself, in one of his most important sermons, opened with the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. And here in Luke 4, he chooses a passage about good news, coming to the poor in his first synagogue reading. And listen, there's a reason for all of this. God is always looking to lead us to an understanding of our utter poverty when it comes to the ability to save ourselves. When you're enduring prolonged periods of poverty, 
of not being able to provide sufficiently for yourself, of having to go and be at the mercy of others. Okay? Some of you have been there. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But when that happens to a human being made in the image of God, there is a, a, a slow degradation of confidence that comes. There's a growing shame that bubbles up from inside. And God talks about his heart for the poor so that we can understand that spiritually that's every one of our conditions. That we've got that deep ache inside that says, I can't provide for myself. That we start to shrink and, and, and wonder, is anybody going to look out for me? Is anybody going to take care of me? Am I going to make it? God wants us to understand that spiritually that's every single one of our disposition. Every one of us are poor. When it comes to our ability to make ourselves right with God, when it comes to the capacity to lift ourselves up and make ourselves worthy, we have none. All we have is open hands, empty ones. Open, empty hands. Just like we sang a minute ago. Nothing, nothing do I bring, but only to your cross I cling. He wants us to see how helpless we actually are. And Jesus proclaims the good news to the poor, to the broken, to the prisoners and the oppressed, to the underserved or the underpaid, to you who feel invisible to the world, passed over or unwanted, to anyone with that empty, lonely feeling deep in your gut, if you're in a place where you feel cast aside, like the world's done with you, like, eh, we're moving on. The daylight's done. The night has come. Eh. You had your day. Now, you're not attention-worthy anymore. So all of you who feel trapped in one way or another, and listen, we can, we can feel this deep in our bones, right? Like, maybe we've crafted some kind of good response. Maybe we cover it up with distractions. I mean, my gosh, how good we are with that fill our lives with enticements and entertainments or maybe a chemical or two of our choosing whether it's illegal or illegal right we, we, we shield ourselves from this quietness TVs in bedrooms what because we can't stand the silence before we fall asleep right but we know like there's this deep internal relation to the poor. We, we start to, I get it. I get helplessness. I get poverty deep inside. It comes down to this, this feeling that we are not worthy. I haven't done enough. I don't own enough. I don't have enough trophies or 
accolades or praises. Even you who have them. Because some of us do. They don't... They last and they're gone. I mean, they don't satisfy our souls. Right? I mean, this is the Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico, the glory days of his football conquering, right? Like living evermore in this glow of a past day because we're seeking to matter. We think, well, I mattered once and that's enough to carry me through forever. It's all just smoke and mirrors. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us in that moment and says, Yes, you too are loved by God. The favor of heaven has come to the poor, the helpless, the empty, the unworthy. That's who can hear this news. When I've stopped believing that I'm something worthy of gaining God's attention, finally I can really see what his attention means. That it's all based on a glorious good king who's given grace to undeserving people. This is the identification with the poor that God wants to bring us to. I can't do anything for myself God has to do it all. This is why those who have been touched by grace from the hand of God look at the poor with compassion and empathy. This is why it changes you. When you've truly been touched by grace, it changes your perspective. And if it hasn't yet changed your perspective, you haven't yet perceived what God's done for you. You think there's some merit in you still. If you can look down on another human being for the amount of money they have or the lack of job they have or the position in life they're in, blah, 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 blah. If you can look down on that, you haven't understood how far down God looked to see you. Good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following, for consider your calling, brothers. What does that mean? That means think about where you were at when God paid attention to you. He says this, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But look what God did. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. I'm talking about you even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let no one boast, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Jesus is the anointed one with the good news message 
that good news message comes to the lowly, the poor, the rejected, the blind, the outcast. And it tells them, God's favor is yours because of God's love for you. When we believe this good news message, it transforms the way we look at the world, the things that we chase after, and how we see people, whether they're successful or unsuccessful. It changes the way we see the world. Actually leading us not to pursue worldly significance, but to understand often worldly insignificance and how that shows God's favor comes to those who are weak. When we truly have heard the good news of God's unmerited favor, we receive this great gift from God. We begin to stop seeking significance in the world. One of the reasons is because worldly, insign- or worldly importance is far too shallow. We begin to understand it doesn't carry weight. I can get all of it. I can have it all. I can put my name up in the skies. I can stand before thousands of people and hear their applause. I can sell all the records or make all the things. Receive all the praise. It doesn't last. It's a realistic view of what this world offers and how empty it truly is. It leads us to pursue a completely different significance. That's why Christians can serve. That's why Christians can lower themselves. That's why there's stories of Christians during the Black Plague who tried to rescue people at the risk of their own life. Right? That's why Christians historically in centuries past started hospitals and universities because they pursued those who didn't have and tried to give them what they couldn't attain for themselves. That's why still today in this age you see a strong response from the Christian community around abortion and around things like children who have Down syndrome and you find that out in the womb. The Christian response is that's, that's an image bearer of God. Somebody who has value and worth and is worth our time and attention and our love because that's exactly what we were like, unwanted, disabled, weak, and God came and rescued us. It's it's why Christians should be marked with these kinds of compassionate dispositions because we know what God has done to us and we know that seeking significance in this world will lead to just disappointment. Just absolute disappointment. I want to read a lengthy interview uh, of Conan O'Brien that I read this week. The interviewer asked him this question, Hey, is this how you want to go out with a show that gets smaller and smaller until it's gone? Nice one, right? Got Conan O'Brien in your head? Big owner's hair. Ready? Okay. Is this how you want to go out with a show that gets smaller and smaller until it's gone? And 
Conan's answer is this, maybe that's okay. Uh, I think you have more of a problem with it than I do. At this point in my career, I could go out with a grand 21-gun salute and climb into a rocket, and the entire Supreme Court walks out, and they jointly press a button. I shoot up into the air, and there's an explosion, and it's orange, and it spells good night and God love. In this culture, two years later, it's going to be, who's Conan? This is going to sound grim, but eventually, all of our graves go unattended. The interviewer says, you're right, that does sound grim, because it does. Conan's like, sorry. Calvin Coolidge was a pretty popular president. He says, I've been to his grave in Vermont. It has the presidential seal on it. Nobody was there. And by the way, I'm the only late-night host that's been to Calvin Coolidge's grave. I think that's what separates me from the other hosts. <laughs> and he tells this story, and I think this is tremendous. I had a, a great conversation with Albert Brooks once. When I met him for the first time, I was, I was kind of stammering. I said, you make movies. They live on forever. I just do these late-night shows. They get lost, and they're never seen again, and, and who cares? And he looked at me, and he said, what are you talking about? None of it matters. None of it matters, Conan answered. No, that's the secret. In 1940, people said Clark Gable is the face of the 20th century. Who freaking thinks about Clark Gable anymore? It doesn't matter. You'll be forgotten. I'll be forgotten. We'll all be forgotten. It's so funny, because you'd think that would depress me. Conan says, I was walking on air after that. I don't know if you know who Clark Gable is. I struggle. I, I think he was a handsome actor. Right? Now that's pretty grim. It's kind of akin to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read that. And it's this glorious proclamation about the reality of a world that is passing away and the deeper truth of one that is becoming more and more, deeper and deeper, greater and greater, until one day it will fill all the earth and it will last forever. It's the subversive quiet, humble, pure, meek and mild who are inheriting that eternal kingdom. Not the loud who are drawing crowds to the praise of their own name and the padding of their own pockets. Good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. This changes how we look at this world. It changes what we pursue. And as we find the depth of this beautiful gospel growing within us, it enables us to look past the facades in this world and to see people, like really see them, right? Like I'm as intimidated as every one of you right? Sometimes I go to that restaurant or obviously that brewery, apparently, or that coffee shop or that event, right? Or God help me if I ever saw Victor Hedman in person, right? Like human greatness intimidates me, right? Like people really 
nicely groomed and well-dressed and fit, like, intimidates me, you know? Folks that just kind of, a couple hundo, pay for stuff, you know, like, it intimidates me. I'm there, I'm, I'm with you. And then a passage like this comes. And I recognize none of that is worth anything eternal. And everyone that has any of those things, or all of those things, is spiritually poor, just like me. And Jesus has planted me here to encounter them in all their earthly grandness so that I might proclaim to them a spiritual grandness that they have no hope of grasping until they've humbled themselves. Right? Does that mean I, I'm cynical and dismissive of people like that? Does that mean I, I beat down in my mind and with my tongue rich people or beautiful people or whatever? Sometimes in my sin, yeah, I do it. Right? But when the Spirit shines through, I go, oh my gosh. They're a hurting, lonely, sad, struggling human being just like me. They may have more decorations, right? But they're still that little Charlie Brown Christmas tree on the inside. God, help me see them for who they really are. Not to pity them, but that I might move toward them with good news, right? And the same for the poor, okay? If I'm prone to being intimidated by earthly grandeur, okay, then I'm also prone to be dismissive of earthly insignificance, right? I'm prone to walk past that guy, right? I'm prone to silence that woman asking for help, okay? I'm prone to read headlines and align with power, right, and despise the weak, I'm prone to these kinds of things. Sorry to confess all my sin while you succeed in these areas, but this is the difficulty of this invisible kingdom and the tension of success in our world. And so the gospel equips me to look at these folks just like God has looked on me to understand that my hands are as empty as theirs. That I'm as on the wrong side of history as they are. That I'm as weak and incapable and poor in spirit. They're in the same boat, which means I can bring them different news. Right? Not polish up, get a job, start a savings account, and God will love you. <laughs> but God became poor for you. Jesus had no pillow. I see that yours is a cardboard box. Let me tell you good news. He's come for you. And anywhere in between on that spectrum. Poor to lower class to lower middle class to middle middle class, upper middle class, upper upper middle class, to rich to, to whatever that whole spectrum. Equipped with this good news for the poor, I can tell everyone, God has done something for you 
unrelated to your earthly position. And it's good news. His smile is here because of Jesus. His favor is here because of the life of the Redeemer. This is the gospel message that at first was welcomed by these people in Nazareth. They spoke well of him. This is amazing. But then when Jesus begins to expound on what it means for them, and we'll see this next week, the tides quickly turn. The tides quickly turn. Because the accusatory finger comes out. And Jesus goes straight to the heart and helps this crowd understand that they don't think they're poor. This crowd in Nazareth does not think it's poor. We'll see more about that next week. Do we think we're poor? That's the question for us. When we recognize we are, man, that good news gospel shines bright. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Would you transform us into people who understand that our position with you is not something that we have earned. We can't work hard enough for favor from God. We can't be born in the right family or have the right education or job. We can't achieve some kind of status of worthiness in our own strength. Our amount of money or our our lack of money or our positions in this world have no bearing on, on what you see. You see straight through all of these things, all of these accoutrements and, and, and decorations in our lives. And you see that deep down inside we're weak, that we can't do it, that we have no spiritual clout, no moral merit. We are the poor. We are the blind. We are the captives. We are the oppressed. And you have proclaimed favor. Favor has come because Jesus has come. And Jesus brings with him a whole new reality. That this world is passing away, but the kingdom of heaven is here, it's growing and it's eternal. God, put us on the right side of that layout, God. Align us with you on sheer grace because of the mercy and the love of our great God and Father. We love you. In Christ's name we pray.